Welcome to the Grow My Salon Business podcast, where we focus on the business side of hairdressing. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and I'll be talking to thought leaders in the hairdressing industry, discussing insightful, provocative, and inspiring ideas that matter. So get ready to learn, get ready to be challenged, get ready to be inspired, and most importantly, get ready to grow your salon business. Hey, it's Anthony Whitaker here, and welcome to today's episode of the Grow My Salon Business podcast. I often talk about what it means to be a hairdresser and how it covers a wide spectrum of things for both the client and for the hairdresser. And when it comes to salons, at one end of the spectrum, you have the budget or the value salons, and at the other end, you have the premium or the luxury brands. And well, they all serve a purpose and they all attract a clientele and a team that represents what the business offers. In a city like London, the luxury end of the market is very competitive and brands will come and go, but occasionally you come across a business that has got everything right and continuously evolves and the result is a great reputation and the longevity that comes with it. My guest on today's podcast is Michael Van Clark, owner of the Michael Van Clark Salon in Marlebone, London, which is firmly at the luxury end of the market. And after 35 years, the Michael Van Clark Salon is going stronger than ever. So in today's podcast, we're going to discuss what it takes to create a luxury brand business. And we're going to talk about the Michael Van Clark Limited Liability Partnership Model and the importance of training your team and lots more. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Michael. Hello, Anthony. Great to be here. Well, it's really good to have you here. I know you're really busy and uh, we have spoken before, but it seems like quite a while ago. And uh, uh, I really appreciate the fact that you've taken some time out of your busy day today for me to ask you all about your business and, um, you know, exactly what's been happening since we last spoke. So let me just start by sort of doing a, if you could do a two minute intro of who is Michael Van Clark, and then we'll jump in and start talking all about your business. Okay, um, well, it's an interesting day today because uh, 3rd of July, 45 years ago, I started my hairdressing career. Wow. I walked into John Frieda's first salon that he had uh, as a partnership, having left Leonard. That was 1978. And I didn't know what I was coming into, but I, I have to say from day one, uh, I, I knew I'd made the right decision and I've loved every day since. So I, I worked with John for 10 years. And then, as you said, 35 years ago, we opened our own business in Marlebone which uh, is now a, a very nice trendy area of London. At the time, it was a quietly forgotten part of London, but very central. And uh, we bought a, a large Regency building that we couldn't afford and sold half of it the same day, the half that we didn't um, require, and started about our business using, I think at the time we used about a quarter of the premises that we had and we just blocked off the rest. But um, something I always had was a very strong client following. I'd always had more clients than I could actually service because I was very committed to building a strong clientele. Um, that that came, and it's something I, I tell my own team 
it was only 18 months into hairdressing that um, I'd had some quite strong PR in Vogue. I'd had an eight page spread in Vogue. I'd had the front page of the Observer magazine with a spread inside that had brought a lot of clients to me. So 18 months into hairdressing, I was barely 19. I remember seeing a client who getting talking to her, she, she didn't know my name. And I guess very precociously at the time, I, I was a bit offended that I was looking after someone that didn't care who did mm. their hair. And after I finished her hair, I went to the desk and I said, don't you ever book anyone to me that hasn't asked for me by name. And okay. that's how it's been yeah, yeah. for the last 43 years. Um, you know, and I told this to, to staff and they looked at me incredulously. You know, how on earth can you be busy? Uh, and I, I, I say, well, it's actually because of that, because I take the responsibility to make sure I'm always fully booked and I always have more clients than I need. I don't want to rely on the variables of other people. And so that client relationship really underpinned my business when I started on my own. You know, that sense that a client should be a client for life. You know, they're not all clients for life, but the attitude is, is that we should be able to deliver um, an experience and a quality of work that they won't want to let go of, that they, that they actually won't want to go somewhere else. Yeah. You know, and we, and we fail. You know, it doesn't work all the time, but we do have, I think at last count, we had over 100 clients still that have been with me for more than 40 years. Wow, that's fantastic. And, you know, it's a very strong, loyal clientele. And, and it was that ethos of customer care that, that really launched our, our business with only, I think, five staff we started with. I had a, no business plan whatsoever. Mm. I just knew I needed to do something. You know, it was, um, you know, I didn't have the team that I should have developed before venturing into something so risky. Mm. Yeah, I didn't want to have other people risk their careers. So, you know, we started with a very few of us that wanted to do something. And, you know, as I say, at the time, clients were never the issue. We always had too many clients to service ourselves. But the issue was getting people that wanted to believe believe enough in our ethos to do the work to reach the standards that we wanted. Yeah. Okay. So we found it very difficult to hire people. There was, there's never been a pool that we could just dip into and recruit from. You yeah. know, everyone that we've taken on, we have to train, we have to go through, you know, rigorous training, which takes time. And we've built a business from that. And, you know, some people will say, well, why don't you have lots of salons? I don't feel the need to have lots of salons. We have a very large salon here. We're now about three, three and a half thousand square feet. We've bought um, buildings next door now, which we plan to bring into the space we have. So, you know, we can double the size of our business over the next three or four years. And it, it's, a, it's a salon which I enjoy going to and clients enjoy coming to. It's probably closer to a club than a salon. And I know lots of people say that, yeah. you know, and it's just, oh, we're like a club. Um, but it, there is that sense because the clients have been coming for so long, you know, many of them feel that it's their salon as much as it is ours. 
Yeah, well, and- it does feel like that. When I've been in there, it feels it feels very yeah. homely. So, Michael, I once listened to you talk about luxury. It was a very mm. insightful sort of observation. And when I was talking about your brand at the beginning, I sort of you know alluded to the fact that it was a luxury brand. What are some of the things that you need to have in place to create a luxury salon environment? It's a very good question. I think I, I myself am a bit of a sucker for luxury. Um, whether that's the the rarity that attracts me, the depth of quality in luxury, which I, I find you know is very stimulating. Um, I think in a salon, it, it's really about having those things in the environment having an experience that's very, very high quality. And that luxury isn't just about tangible things. It's also very much about how people treat each other and how people treat you. You know, the way those people come across, there's a certain standard that makes you feel special. Yeah, okay. And I I was actually reading a very interesting article yesterday um in luxury london actually and it, it was a um a critique on alan ducasse at the dorchester mm-hmm. uh not a cheap meal uh, um 750 pounds for a set menu with drinks okay um, it's not a cheap meal plus, plus service yeah. per head um <clears throat> but it comes down to about 285 plus service if you don't have the the wine pairings but uh, I, I research that sort of thing. I spend my life researching luxury examples of things, whether they be in retail or hospitality or, or, or any area of excellence because it, fascin- it fascinates me anyway. But um, I think the journalist got this one absolutely right because he was saying about the service it wasn't the food. It was a three Michelin star. There are only five of those in London. And he said it wasn't the food because you expect that. And it's something I've said as well to staff. You know, people expect good food now. It's very much about atmosphere. But what he said that was so telling was that it was how the staff made him feel. He felt by the end of the meal that the sommelier and the head waiter would take him into the kitchen at the back for, you know, some leftover cheese on, and biscuits. Okay. You know, he wanted to invite them down to his local pub. Right. Got you. Okay. So it was very much they, about they, that people component. They got, the, they got the balance of service that it wasn't aloof. Yeah. It wasn't overly friendly, Pally, but yeah. it, there was a connection there that made that diner feel special, feel that, you know, he was wanted. And, and that, that's very much part of the luxury experience. It's not enough just to go into something that's um, all golden diamonds. Yeah. It's like it doesn't touch on an emotional level. Yeah. But having said that, in, in your salon, which I've been you know, very fortunate to go into a few times, mm-hmm. um, you have 
little touches that over and above that personal experience. And I totally yes, agree with you, yes. whether it's the, you know, the deli that you have or the restaurant, I'm not sure what you refer to it as, or, yeah, you know, yeah. the fragrances that you have in the bathrooms, yes. the flowers, the library. Talk mm. to us about all that sort of stuff and how that contributes to the, the luxury experience of your brand. Yeah, they are. Those things are very important. And I think we're fortunate that because we own, own the building, um, the fixtures and fittings we can afford to go overboard mm. because you know we know we're not going to give up the lease in five years and go somewhere else. You know we can invest in a, a refit, knowing that we will get thirty years out of it. You know, in fact, one of the big refits we did thirty-two years ago, where we built stone staircases, that the whole. Gr- basement level is in limestone it still looks beautiful mm. and yet that's over 30 years old now yeah um it cost a lot of money then yeah everything was bespoke worn up fixtures and fittings bronze door furniture but it's still there you know we only paid once yeah so so the actual foundation is important in that we invest in that sort of quality um but then we can Add to that on a changing basis by having fresh flowers that we will have around the salon. They're changed weekly. Um, you know, that, that adds a lot to the experience for people. You know, we will have art and antiques around the salon. Um, just the, the sense of quality, as you mentioned, the perfumes, you know, we will have perfumes and they will be high-end Chanel and Dolce Gabbana, and you know all of those types of fragrances, and as you say, there'll be chocolates, bowl, huge bowls of chocolates available for people, which um, are very popular. Those little touches don't actually cost that much mm. across the average bill. Yeah, you know we we can put all of that in because we do that ourselves. We do the flowers ourselves. It would cost much more to have a florist come and do them. Right, but. Um, all those touches add a lot to the luxury experience for the client, but they may add up to 1% of our bill. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So when we talk about the, the bill, what sort of price point, just for our listeners mm. that are you know all over the world, mm. what, what sort of price point is a, and I know in your salon that you have you know a, a level system, so not everyone is at the same price yeah. point, but, yeah. but at, at the top end of the scale, so for yourself, for a, a haircut, or whatever service you want to uh, quote us on, what would be the sort of ballpark figure that a, a client would pay? So, so for a haircut with myself, um, it's three nine five. Okay, so that's um, that's three nine five pounds. So it's about five hundred US dollars. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, and then we have a, there's a follow on price that's not that much different now. It's about thirty pounds cheaper as yeah. a loyalty price. So it's three sixty five, I think now. And then um, we will have haircut prices that go all the way down to I think about eighty pounds. Right. Now. Okay. So there's quite a range. Yeah. Yeah. And that that range is very much based on experience. So right. at eighty pounds, they will be a second year graduate. Right. Um, they'll be in our their second year with us. We advance people quite quickly through their training. Um, it's quite intense for them, and then all the different levels in between. 
Right. Okay. So it starts at about eighty pounds, so about a hundred US dollars. Goes up to yes your price point, four hundred odd pounds. So uh, about yeah. five hundred US dollars, just to give it some yes. context. Um, one yes. of the things that I was really impressed with when I, I last was in your salon was the deli space. Yes, um, it's and lovely. I know it is lovely, and I know that in a bygone era, um, you know, sort of the sixties, the seventies, that was quite a common thing to have a restaurant within a salon. Yeah. And and nowadays you don't see that very often. Talk to us about the the deli space. Do you refer to it as the deli space or the restaurant now, space? It, it, now it's the deli. Right, yes. okay. So, so talk um, to us about how that is evolved as part of your business and who it serves. It's quite a, it, it, it's always difficult to make it work in a salon because um, for it to work for a chef and their staff, you have to have enough turnover for them to be able to make a business out of it. Yeah. And it doesn't really work or it hasn't worked for us to try and employ someone to do it and right. then manage them. It's yeah. much better. It's been much better to actually make it a separate business uh, and, and set our standards. Um, but what we really wanted, we very much important for us was to have that experience for the clients. Yeah. And then being able to have food, wine, cocktails, whatever, while they're there having their hair done, that was also part of that whole experience and tapping into why do people go to restaurants? The restaurant business has boomed at the high end, not because people are hungry and they need to eat. You know, they go out for the experience. Yeah. They expect to eat well, but you don't go and spend a hundred pounds a head or 150 pounds a head because you're hungry. Mm. You go out because it's an event for you. And there's something about the ambiance of these restaurants that are in central London, very busy all the time. Yeah. There's something about the ambiance and the the nature of um, being amongst people that are enjoying themselves, seeing other people. There's a lot of people spotting goes on. Salons are very similar to that. And I think salons can learn an awful lot from the successes and failures of the restaurant business. Bringing catering into the business, which has grown very well for us, has has been a a huge help in us elevating our whole offering to that luxury level. Right. Okay. And I know that you were telling me uh, previously when we spoke about this, when you just put it in, that I think I'm right in saying that you did away with the staff room. And yes, that yes. the deli sort of became as much for staff as for clients. And it was sort yes. of giving them a, yes. a sort of a luxury experience. Tell us about that. Well, it was that also. And I think in teaching a team how to behave with clients, you almost have to treat them as clients as well. You, you have to get them to live the experience as yeah. much as possible. And, you know, it's a battle sometimes, especially with entry-level staff. If they're coming into the West End, it's very high-end. Mm-hmm. And at that, that stage, they're going home to something very, very different. They're mixing with people that don't get what they do. You know, totally. they don't understand yeah. that they're moving into a different world. And, and often there's competition in their home environments and their friends' environments to actually hold them back a little mm. bit. Yeah, And yeah. You know, we find very much as we advance people, 
they often have to let go of a lot of their their old friend group in order to realize who they can be at another level yeah yeah i remember so, you you told me in fact i've uh, used your story the coffee shop experience story oh okay. and I, i've used it several times i've probably embellished yes. it quite a lot yeah. uh but it is such a good way of yes. teaching people about what you were just alluding to so so yes. talk us through that process again of uh, why you did that and you know what that experience is like for a young person to sort of understand that a cup of coffee is not just a cup of coffee yeah it started out as a price versus value um symbolism and for them to understand that um because you know again we'll get young kids coming into the west end and the idea of a client spending that much money on their hair, which is could easily be more than a week's wages for them, yeah. you know, they don't necessarily quite get it. They think mm. they just think it's expensive. Mm. They don't understand that actually there's a value judgment there being made by people that to them this is good value. And so it started as a price value um, symbol for them to understand that there is a difference. And what we did, we would send pairs of apprentices um, to three different places to have a coffee. One of them would be uh, M&S at Marble Arch, where they had a cafe. One would be a three or four star hotel locally. And one would be Claridge's. And the coffees ranged in price from what was probably about £1.90 to the last time at Claridge's, it was about £8 or something. Yeah, And they had to take photos of what they were getting. They had to take photos of the washrooms that they used. They had to take notes on how they were treated, how they felt. And finally, would they like to repeat the experience? Mm. And which did they think was the best value? Well, of course, you know, everyone wanted to go back to Claridge's. And that was the most expensive coffee of all. It was eight pounds. Yeah. That was the, the experience they wanted to repeat. They were treated so well. The coffee didn't come just on its own. It was beautifully served on a tray with, you know, accompaniments. No one wanted to go back to Marks and Spencer's and have a coffee, even if it, if it was being bought for them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and the mid-range one was like, well, again, what's the point? Yeah. And so I, I think, you know, it was a very good... Um, experience to illustrate that value is different to price and people's perception of value will depend on what they're receiving and whether they want to repeat it sure yeah the other thing i before we got on this call i was you know uh, i was on your website and i was looking at a video and uh that you'd done and it was a short video it was three or four minutes and uh, there's a couple of things that really stood out one of them was you know, and you were introducing different staff and there was a housekeeper. Well, her, her title was housekeeping manager. Her name was Elsa. Mm. And I yes. thought, how many salons call someone a housekeeper or, you know, the housekeeping right. manager? So what exactly does Elsa do? And then there was another uh, time I saw that you had someone and that their title was maitre d' floor manager. And so yes. these titles are very important, aren't they, in bringing well attracting the right caliber of staff but also getting people to realize what their role is and elevating it well i think it is important and it took me a long time to realize how important the titles were 
because and, and to define the role much more clearly you know beyond the title to actually define the responsibilities and the role more clearly but you know we have it is a large salon and it has lots of very um delicate finishes as well lots of art and antiques um the flowers too it does need a sensitivity to deal with those things so we do have housekeepers that are around during the day as well but you know also for our apprentices they're on a learning journey where they're not just learning how to do hair they're learning how to be and communicate with a very you know a, a, a more discerning section of society they're learning to be more elegant how they carry themselves how they conduct themselves how they communicate with people mm. it's it's very much life skills yeah. that, that people acquire and i think we are very lucky to have the opportunity to look after our clients and you know the ones that are with us for a number of years realize that you know it's so much of their own development is from the clients that they're looking after mm. because they're from all walks of life and they're very savvy people you know they're very discerning and you pick up a lot from these clients and that's a, a huge opportunity for someone that's come from the back streets yeah. you know as i did myself yeah. yeah um it was something that i was wide-eyed when i started i, mm. I loved it and and i know you know sassoon was the same leonard was the same they all mm. came from you know rough back street areas and they, they were just they were so attracted to this world yeah what, what are some of the other things that you do practically to culturally educate your team particularly the young ones um we will take them to uh, we have two two very good young staff that i say young they've been with me for 10 11 years now um they look after the apprentices now they will take them to museums they will take them on fun days uh yeah i will take staff to certain restaurants where I want them to understand how things could be done um, for them to get a feel of, you know, places where they wouldn't necessarily go themselves. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think Claridge's has been a great example for a lot of what we've tried to get across to people. But I also think there's, there's a club called Annabelle's, which I use. And again, it's so different to, it's at another level to a lot of restaurants and I will take people there and I'll take the team there. You know, they just, they start to see that there is actually another world yeah. that they can aspire to. Yeah. I remember you told me at one point that you would also even take the, some of the assistants into your apartment and you would do dinner for them. Do you still do that? Absolutely. Yeah. And um, every month we have the whole team up because yeah. we have a large media room upstairs. Yeah. We have our monthly team meeting in my home um, because we can get everyone in this room with a big screen yeah. and, and do the meeting there. But I actually love having the young ones up for dinner. Sure. It's something that's a real pleasure for me. And, you know, we limit it to about eight or 10 because yeah. I, I, I can't really handle more than that. But, you know, they're some of the best evenings of all. Yeah, I'm sure they are. And I know you have a thing, I, I hope I'm getting this term right, where you refer to it as apprenticeship, to partnership 
Now, yes, I sort of know the background of that, but um, could you tell our listeners what apprenticeship to partnership actually means? Because I, I do want to also then dig into what is this partnership model that you've uh, that you've got. Well, we, we like to feel that if we're taking on an apprentice and we're developing them, that they will want to stay with us. Um, I also feel that the, the salon, it, you know, it belongs to all of us and that um, as many of the team as possible should share in the rewards of that. So it was in 2007, after um, several years working with lawyers, accountants, that we formed our limited liability partnership. So apprentices now would be expected to move through three years of stages. And if they're achieving what they need to at each stage, at the end of their apprenticeship, they come into the business as a partner. So uh, I think the youngest one we had, um, who is one of the girls that looks after the apprentices now, I think she was a partner at 18. Okay. Um, so and, so what does that look like? What does what does it mean that they're a partner? Do they have, you know, profit share? Do they have voting yes. rights? Do they have something yes. saleable if they left? I mean, how does that work? Um, it's not a partnership in that sense that they have to put money in. Right. Yeah, that was something that wouldn't have worked. It's too, it's asking too much. It's too high risk. Sure. It's essentially profit share. Yeah. So... It's it's no downside, but it's all upside. So now I've probably given away 40% of the business to the team inside. That That's increasing, which as we get more people on board and they will earn some, most of their earnings, about 80% will come from 70, 80% from their own work and at least 20% from the overall profits of the salon, but that twenty percent grows generally quicker than their own um, their own work. Yeah. So for for the older partners now, that um, end of year profit can be quite a substantial amount. Yeah. So after three years, a trainee is a qualified stylist, and they automatically become a partner, or they're invited to become a partner. I mean, is it, how does that how does that work? Uh, well, we would want them to become a partner. Yeah. You know, we would want them to to join us properly because it, it means that we have that security of feeling that they are part of the whole team. Yeah. They know they have the benefits and the long-term benefits as we grow as well. So we would want them to be a partner. Okay. And you know, virtually everyone in, in the, all the seniors are partners bar a couple. Yeah. And the apprentices are as, as we say, apprentices, but we have very few people that not one or the other. Right. Okay. There, there are a few employees and there are a few um, contracted associates, but most of the key people are our partners. Right. I think it's about 18 or 20 of us now. Okay. And so like at the end of the year, you know, the books are done and yes. you know how profitable or not the business has been for that yes. year. And then a yes. partnership arrangement, uh, a shareholders um, yeah. arrangement, and they get a Profits percentage. are distributed. Fantastic. Yes, that's right. I, it, I think that's a brilliant model for this industry. Um, I think it is. And I think it's done a lot to stabilize our team. Mm. We have very, very low staff turnover. Uh, I think we've got four four members now that are more than 30 years. 
Um, we've got probably half a dozen at 20 years and quite a lot around the 10 year period now. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that stability is really important for running a business. Yeah. That, you know, ev everyone's growing together. Yeah, definitely. I, I think that, you know, these days there's so many changes to the hairdressing employee employer business model that um, having something that gives people a real career and a real opportunity to grow and a real opportunity to, to earn more and own more and to feel like part of something is. Well, and that's is right. And, and but also, as they can see, you know, because we are you know, in central London and we are at the luxury end, yeah. you know, our prices reflect that. So our average bills are probably £170. Um, some of our bills can be £1,000 if people are having colour and cut and whatever, but the average bill is about 170 So someone coming in at year one, we expect them by the end of year three, their own business, their own clientele to be turning over about 100000 a year. Yeah. So okay. at that point, we bring them into the partnership, right? And then they they grow from there. So I mean, we've got probably if we looked the other day, and I, I talked about this with the partners because the industry we know the industry is at the bottom ten percent of the earnings scale in the country. You know, yeah. hairdressers, carers, actors, mm. the hospital porters. You know, and that that's never been my experience. No, and I don't think it has to be. I think what hairdressers offer their clients is something that's really very, very skilled and specialized. Mm. You, know, you have to have not just the creative skills, you have to have those personal skills, the technical skills, the social skills, the empathy. You know, there's an awful lot that you have to have to do well as a hairdresser that in most jobs you can get by with one or two of those. Yeah. In hairdressing, you have to have all of them. Yeah, exactly. For, for, and that requires, you know, quite special training and development. Yeah. But, um, you know, sadly, for most of the industry, they are in the low end of the pay scale, but that's not what we want for our team. Yeah. And we were looking the other day, looking at um, averages in the UK earnings, and nine of our team are in the top 1% of UK earnings. Fantastic. Not UK earnings in hairdressing. Yeah. UK, UK earnings, earnings. Across the board, full stop. Yeah, and that's what we want. We want people to do as well as they possibly can and yeah. for each year to be better. It's not just about achieving success. It's sustainable success. Yeah. That's what's so important. Yeah. Well, you know, I used to say when I had my salons, which was many years ago now, I used to say that I wanted my team to be the best paid people in the industry. But there was a second half to that sentence, which was, and I also want them to be the most productive people in the industry, because if yeah, they're not productive, yeah. they can't be the best paid. So, you know, yeah. you mentioned a figure then you said after three years, uh, if they're doing 100 grand a year in, in services, then they become a partner. Is that the criteria for promotion or was that the main criteria that there are certain, you know, financial benchmarks that they have to hit before they go from one level to the next? There are, because you, you've said productivity. At the end of the day, productivity is the key thing. And, you know, if you're not productive with your time, mm. then, you know, someone's overpaying. And, you know, we are in a salon where people could get by with not doing very much work and charging very high fees. Mm. But I don't think that's fair to the clients either. Yeah. So, you know, productivity for art. And it's been actually the number one driving force for us 
since lockdown is restoring productivity. Yeah. Because obviously lockdown just crashed our productivity. Sure. Yeah. And uh, we've been re rebuilding that um, ever since the last lockdown. Yeah. What What do you find uh, young people want today? You know, since lockdown, there's been, I think lockdown was a, a catalyst for a lot of people to sort of reassess mm. life and work-life balance and all that sort of thing. Mm. Um, what sort of impact has that had on your business in terms of creating more flexibility for people in terms of how they work? Has, have you had to make any significant changes? Um, we haven't really. I think there is, you're absolutely right, there is this zeitgeist energy around about um, work-life balance. But I think it carries a lot of negative baggage about the word work. Mm. And my own belief is that for a lot of the people promoting this idea that you know, work less, work less, work less, work at home, you know, don't work if you don't have to. Mm. A lot of people promote, promoting these ideas are people that perhaps are working in office jobs that they really don't like. And I think that's sad that they're actually working, not properly engaged with their work. And if you're not properly engaged, you're not going to enjoy work at all. Yeah. I think in hairdressing, we're very fortunate that you can engage fully and if you are engaged fully it's a very exciting way to you know be a professional yeah it's very social it's very creative it ticks all of those boxes mental health you know it, it's very good for your mental health being the service industry and be creative to have free expression you know all those things are, are very positive but i do think i am challenging certain ideas that are being fed to young people these days that makes them misunderstand how life works. And yeah. yes, I do get people in year two that have achieved a certain level of success, but are still in their apprenticeship thinking that, you know, but surely it's okay to go and get an easy jet holiday every month. Yeah. You know, but, oh, but why can't I just have three weeks off? Well, at a critical stage of building your clientele, it's not wise. Mm. You're learning a craft and a profession and you're building a clientele. You have to apply yourself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and the whole thing about work-life balance, I think, you know, work is part of life. Yeah, well, you know, I'm, well I'm very lucky <laughs> and I think you're very lucky in that we love what we do. I never really think of... I just sort of work all the time, but that's part of my life and I love it. There's no great hardship to it. And, you know, you love what you do and I don't imagine there's that much sort of separation. You know, I mean, obviously we all need a holiday and all that sort of stuff, but I think a lot of the key to it is what you just said. There's a lot of people in jobs and offices and stuff that actually hate what they do for a living. Uh, yeah. Whereas if you love what you do, I mean, I hate that expression that if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life, but there is some truth yeah. in it, you know? Well, and I think, you know, it, it's not, it's not, luck or good fortune that you enjoy what you do you give yourself fully to it yeah exactly exactly and you know if you give yourself fully to something the chances are you will become good at it and if yeah. you're good at it you will tend to enjoy it yeah yeah exactly one feeds the other what um one thing i wanted to ask you about was awards there yes. was a period of time where you were and i don't know if you still are or not uh where you were very into awards the award side of the industry particularly the, the business awards and you were cleaning up 
you know, consistently for year after year. Um, are they still important to you? Less so. Um, I, I, I very much enjoyed that period when um, we put a lot of work into entering the awards and it was great for the team. Um, but they do take a lot of time. Yeah. And I think for the last, I think the last ones were, gosh, it must must be seven, eight years ago um, that we won. But we did, we, you're right, we, we won a couple of awards and then we went back the following year. We won four. No one had ever won four. And uh, I remember the compere making a comment by the time we got the second one. And he said, oh, why don't you just stay up on stage? Which <laughs> we all thought was quite funny. Um but then we won four again a couple of years later and then four again um, a year after that. Um, and I don't think anyone has actually won four in one year, but they may, maybe they've changed the way that they allocate awards yeah. now. It's probably not good for them to give too many to one salon. Yeah. What, um, what, what did they do for the salon? I think we didn't, I don't think we used them that much PR wise, but they're very nice in the salon. You know, we quietly know we've achieved something that's you know notable mm. and the team, the, the team really enjoyed having those. We got our manager to win manager of the year. You know, I uh, obviously helped a lot with how that was presented. We had, I think four juniors, one junior of the year, that was great. I think there was a couple of years we had three or four juniors in the finals, Fantastic. which is brilliant, br- yeah. brilliant for them. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, it was great. But I think because of the time and we moved on a little, we did we put less effort in and we missed most years of not putting something in. I've spent an awful lot, lot of time on products of the last um, seven or eight years. And yeah. We've developed an awful lot of products and it takes so much time to develop products the testing the development the the lab work you know takes takes three or four years for many of the products yeah well i I was gonna i was gonna ask you about that um because they've exploded since they're doing very well they're doing very well and they're available now i know they're available in the u.s so they've uh, like uh, how, how global is it um it is in the US, but still through our own US website and through Amazon US. Yeah. Um, we haven't yet gone to bricks and mortar because we had a lot of success with digital. Mm. And I just felt that it was something that I could control more. Mm. Um, you know, we've let some salons have it. We are moving into professional now, but mainly it's digital. Digital in this country, digital in Europe. Um, bricks and mortar in Australia and New Zealand, mm-hmm. Mecca, um, have had it for a number of years okay. and do very well with it. Yeah. But uh, mainly we're, we have a, a digital team. Uh, and I think what I like about digital is that, you know, we're building up a, a large database of followers. We have um, people we send our newsletter to. We have our Instagram, our TikTok now, which is fairly new as well. You know, I've had to under- learn so much uh, at a late stage in my life. And each time, each new thing, I think, you know, it, it, it's, it's like a wall of new information. And I think, oh, my God, I mean, how on <laughs> earth am I going to understand all this? I remember my first meeting at the Facebook agency, you know, and all these young kids just talking in acronyms. 
And I was just, oh my, and the back end of the information that they draw from the internet, mm. I mean, fascinating, but just reams and reams of information. Yeah. But actually, once I started to understand it more, I did enjoy it. Yeah. And then we, you know, it's just likewise, Instagram, Google, all the analytics. Only recently we started TikTok, just before Christmas. Mm. We've got nearly 20,000 followers already, which is Great. brilliant. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, yeah. We just started a TikTok shop about six weeks ago, yeah. which Good. is doing well. Yeah. Um, in that world, it changes so quickly. And, and the small team we have, are just you know they're very into finding the new and we have to find the new all the time because the way we do stuff works really well and then suddenly that doesn't work anymore you have to go to this one sure and yeah. it, it it changes so quickly the digital world yeah i was so, gonna i was gonna ask you about that before yeah. because you've got two well you've got two very different businesses you've got the salon and you've got the product side mm. of it and i was gonna yes. ask you before how important is social media for your target market? And I suspect in terms of the salon, it's not particularly important. But in terms of the products, well, it's hugely important. Have I got that right or wrong? Well, you have. And um, we do an awful lot of promotion now because of the products. Yeah. And I, w I wouldn't do that promotion for the salon because deep down, part of me feels that you should be able to get clients to refer you. Yes. Now that's probably probably wrong, mm. and you know, in this world, you need to promote to get yourself out wider. But I still have this old-fashioned view that, as a professional, your clientele are your best sales force, and yeah. if you look after them well enough and don't lose them, you'll have, have more clients than you need. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't. It, it's not quite enough when you've got twenty other stylists and young ones coming up. Yeah, it's, it's not quite enough to feed them quickly enough. And so what's interesting is that by doing the products, the salon benefits enormously in terms of the spin off of clients. You know, we have clients that new clients will come in and say, oh, I've been using your products for two years, you know, and I've decided to come and have my hair done. Right. And we get a lot of clients like that. Clients come from around the world because they've seen, you know, one of our social media influences and they've been following them and they come from South America to have their hair done. Yeah. Yeah. So it helps, but it's not, it's not the main intention. The main intention is the product company and the salon should sort itself out, but actually benefits enormously from what the products are doing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, um, as you know, I, I get your newsletter, your blog, uh, every week and it drops in and I, I always have a look at it. Um, <laughs> Thank you. I think there's great things on it. I mean, the, the video I mentioned earlier on, that was on the one that came last week. Uh, just that short video. I don't know how new yes. it is, but it's like, I remember looking at it thinking, God, it's like the United Nations, your salon. There were just all these different yeah. accents. And uh, I remember yeah, you told lovely. me before how many different <laughs> uh, languages were spoken between yeah. your team. And it and it's truly is this, you know, sophisticated, uh, um, you know, multinational environment. And, yeah. and that's fantastic. But one of the things that I particularly like on your blog is uh, 
Gabby's Bakery. And for people yes. who don't realize, Gabby is your wife. And she, you know, my, my wife follows her recipes on the, um, on the bottom of the weekly newsletter on a regular basis. Yeah. I have a particular favorite. It's the uh, Caribbean spiced rum cake and the apple banana and maple tray bake. And, you know, she does these fantastic, <laughs> really healthy things. And it's like, it's like it's not a newsletter about hairdressing all the time yeah. there's hair components to it but there's all sorts of other you know social and gabby's bakery all sorts of other stuff yeah. in there and your products and uh, i think that's a very interesting marketing approach you know um that you've taken it, there it, yeah i think it's really trying to cover lifestyle points and i i think we, we went we started to really drive up the whole blogs and everything when lockdown happened you know suddenly we had nothing to do and i'd been um told by some of our marketing people you need to you need to blog you need to blog and i i was doing some before but not to the same extent as now mm. but when lockdown happened i had all this i also had the headspace to get into the routine of initially just writing about family life mm. um not just hair stuff you know what we could do for clients over zoom but also just what we were doing at home um it gave me a chance to get into the theme of writing i'll write about restaurants i'll write about holiday locations i'll write about hair problems mainly um but it's really things that i believe our clients have an interest in yeah um so anything that's of interest to them that's on brand with us, I think can go in the newsletter. Yeah, well, I think you do a great job. But I remember reading about some art gallery you went to. Now, I might be wrong here. Was it in Brussels or Belgium? Somewhere? In Amsterdam. Amsterdam. Yeah, in yeah. the Vermeer exhibition. Yeah. And uh, that was, it was a lovely trip. And again, it's something that, you know, we talk to clients about, Um and I knew that a lot would be interested because it was a client actually told me and I thought, I love Vermeer. I followed him for years and I thought we must go. Mm. And I, I booked that night and then within a few days, the entire season was sold out. Mm. No one could get tickets. Yeah. Like four months had just been sold out. I thought, oh, I'm so glad we got those. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So writing about that was lovely because it's something I enjoy. Yes, yeah. uh, that whole art world and Amsterdam. Amsterdam's lovely, easy to get to on the Eurostar. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and there was another thing I wanted to ask you about. Now I'm not sure where I read this. It could have been on your website. It could have, it could have been in one of your blogs. I have no idea. Uh, but you used the phrase, and I thought I must ask you about that. And it was you were talking about industry hairdressers, and you were talking about client-focused hairdressers. What, yes. what's, the, what's the difference between an industry hairdresser and a client-focused hairdresser? I, I guess uh, I guess it comes from my background, starting with John Frieda, um, always working in the West End. It was very much client-based, you know. So even though with John I did a lot of session work, a lot of magazine work at the time, he was doing a lot at the time. I did two or three years of. You know, all the magazines and it was great. I loved it and the shows. It was still very much about you were doing that, but then you were bringing your skills back for the clients. We didn't worry that much what the industry thought of us. We weren't doing many hair shows. And I think I think some some hairdressers fall into a trap 
of worrying too much what other hairdressers think and not worrying enough what the client in front of them thinks. Mm. And they, they tend to get drawn into too much industry stuff that never really build a proper clientele. Yeah, yeah. Now, some of those ones go on to great things. You can, you know, people like Sam McKnight and, you know, Guido, um, or they'll do teaching and they reach a peak and it's, it's fantastically successful. But I think a lot get stranded in the middle, but then don't have a core clientele to fall back on. Yeah, there's an interesting connection between that and the awards side of it. You know, like the the awards side of the industry, I was very much when I had my salons into the awards side of things as well. But clients don't really care. Um, they don't. You know, it's no. not it, like it's great no. when you're at Grosvenor House or wherever you are and you're a hairdresser of the year or you win some, you know, accolade for your business or, or whatever it is. But it doesn't, in a lot of cases, I won't say all cases, in a lot of cases, it doesn't transfer into more clients. It doesn't transfer right. into a That's more right. financially successful business. That's um, right. And and I, and I think particularly now when the session world has gone through a big downturn, mm. you know, we get a lot, a lot of applications from stylists that have been in the industry a long time. And, you know, they'll still write a CV full of all the magazines and the industry work they've done, but they don't have any clients. Mm. And I don't think they quite get that at the end of the day, that those skills don't necessarily translate to being a good stylist with clients. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so the value that they think they may have, they actually don't have. And it's, it's very difficult to integrate and transition someone who's had, you know, 30 years experience, but mainly doing that type of work. Yeah. Who then says, I want to be a salon based stylist. Mm but they, they, they don't have this clientele or, or the skills necessarily. Yeah, exactly. Um, you mentioned your products, but you didn't mention the name of them. And uh, it's an unusual name for hair products. Yes. And that's good in itself as it gives them some presence because people obviously yes. ask the question, which I'm going to ask you, uh, which mm. I have asked you before, so I know the answer to, but uh, the products are called Three More Inches. So yes. how did that come about? Well, it came about from what was a, a very small range we had at the time. And this key product, which was a pre-wash treatment, which was different to everything that was on the market and actually allowed people to keep a quality of hair that would grow much longer without splitting, without breaking. And the name actually came to me when one of our test models, who's, who started out with a shoulder length bob, dark hair full of split ends mm. and over the course of like 10 months her hair grew longer than she'd ever had it but there were no split ends anymore and because i knew she'd been using these liters of product that we'd been testing with her the name just came to me let's let's call it three more inches okay we could have said four more inches but <laughs> I, I, I prefer to over 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 deliver yeah under yeah. promise exactly <laughs> but um you know i think as the range has got much broader now, we are bringing our own name back onto pack and and reducing the the power of the three more inches. It's, oh, it's, okay. it's becoming minimised on new packaging. Yeah. Van Clark 
is coming back in on front of pack. Yeah. And um, we our strap line is healthcare for hair. Yeah. Which actually covers the entire range of products. Yeah. Um, and just from our digital understanding of what people are searching for, they're searching much more for my name than they are for three more inches. Right. Okay. And um, obviously now the product range has got much broader. There's a lot of them. Uh, yes. And so therefore it obviously takes up a lot of your time. Are you, are you yeah. running the product company yourself as well as being a, yes. an in-demand hairdresser behind the chair? How are you sort of carving up that time? Um, foolishly, yes, I am <laughs> doing all, all of it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But we have very good people um, that are very skilled in their part but I am overseeing and driving the products. I do all of the product development, all of the new products. Uh, we do all of the testing ourselves in-house. I guide product design um, as well. Um, you know, I enjoy it. I probably do too much. I want to step back a little bit. The salon takes a lot of my time. We yeah. have about 45 people now in, in the salon, um, but we are bringing in people to take on more responsibility. Right. We've just taken on a very good maitre d' yeah. from one of the ma major London restaurants. Okay. And she's doing very well. Good. And you're still behind the chair frequently during the week? Well, I, I, I am actually a bit more now than I was. I was just doing three mornings um, a week because I think it is helpful for me to be there for the rest of the team. Yeah. Those mornings seem to have become till like three or four in the afternoon. Right. Okay. Um, and I start at 7.45, the first clients. So, okay. uh, yeah, our first clients can be 7.30 for some of the team. Yeah. The older ones like to start early. Yeah. Uh, I like to start early as well. So I'm doing pretty much three full days with clients and working around the other stuff with, with my team to make sure that the salon's still going forward. Okay. And, and when we last spoke, you were, and you've sort of alluded to this at the very beginning about the, the footprint of the building. You only used a small part of it. And bit by yes. bit, you've, you've bought bits of it back and, you know, yes. you're knocking down. You, you seem to always be knocking down walls and, and <laughs> expanding into other parts. Well, when we last spoke, I, I, you, you were turning <laughs> part of it into a gym or something. Did that happen? Um, no, lockdown got in the way. Right, but okay. The plans are there and we have um, pre-app permission yep. and we are back with the architects now to put full application in. Right. So that's very much, um, we, we want to sort of expand the salon into wellness more as well. You know, the beauty side is great. My, my wife was a personal trainer. We're very much into the whole health and wellness aspect. Mm. We'd like to offer a bit more of that to the clients as well. Um, so having something a bit more all-encompassing in the yeah. building would, okay. would be good. All right, fantastic. Yeah. What well, What's the most important thing that you've learnt in? Uh, so what did you say it was? Forty-five years ago that you started hairdressing. Is that right? Forty-five years ago you started hairdressing. Today, yes, today. today. Right. Okay. Yeah. So and the salon you started. 35 odd years ago is that right yes okay. yes so so what's the most important thing you've learned as a leader as a salon owner as a manager of other people oh what one thing yeah if you uh, could uh, just yeah just uh, distill uh, it down to one thing <laughs> i guess the most important thing is to keep learning for, for everyone yeah you know I, I think the moment you think you know it yeah 
life seems to pull the rug from under you. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes that, <laughs> and I think sometimes that question, mm, it just seems all encompassing and too big to answer. Mm, but mm. actually, I think exactly what you've said is is the answer. I, I once heard someone say, whatever the question is, the answer is education. And that's pretty much what yeah. you've just said. I really, think isn't it, it is. I yeah. think. And I think it's also what keeps things interesting. Yeah. You know, I had um, had one of the young ones the other day say to me, um, you know, why is it not OK just to get to a level and just stay there? And I said that, that you know, in my experience, people that try to just hang on to where they are and stop growing within a team end up becoming like a cancer within that team. Mm. You know, that they, they start to resent the fact that they're not making progress and people are going past them. They'll often try to hold other people back yeah. so that they don't look as bad in relation to their peers. Yeah. I don't think it's an option and, and especially not in the centre of a global city like London. Yeah. Where exactly. it's so, so fiercely competitive. Mm. You know, you can't just think you've arrived as soon as you think you've arrived and sit back, then you start going downhill. Yeah, exactly. A new generation. And people people go past, past you. you. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, well, on, on that note, one last question. Uh, what do you wish you were better at? <laughs> Relaxing. Okay. <laughs> um, I think, I think since lockdown, you know, we've all worked so hard to recover what we had and get mm. back to growth. And I think it's very easy to keep taking on more stuff. You know, I, I love creating stuff. I love doing stuff, but um, I, I also need to to be careful. I don't overdo it. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, on that note, we need to uh, we need to wrap up. Whereabouts can people connect with you, Michael, on uh, Instagram or any other social? Channels? Yeah, we we have our um, at Van Clark Instagram. Uh, we have YouTube channel. We have a lot of um, tutorials on YouTube. Great. We wow. have our TikTok channel now as well, and people can always uh, write to me through our website. Right. If they okay. have any questions, I'm very happy to share anything we know with um, anyone that would like to listen. Fabulous. Well, that's very generous of you. I'll put those links uh, in the show notes for today's podcast. So if you're listening to this podcast with Michael Van Clark and have enjoyed it, do me a favor, take a screenshot on your phone, share it to your Instagram stories. And don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating on review and review, sorry, on the Apple podcast app. So to wrap up, Michael, thank you for being on this week's episode of the Grow My Salon Business Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Thanks, Anthony. We'll catch up soon. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you'll find us at growmysalonbusiness.com or on Facebook and Instagram at growmysalonbusiness. And if you enjoyed tuning into our podcast, make sure that you subscribe, like, and share it with your friends. Until next time, this is Anthony Whitaker wishing you continued success.